Friends of Jackson Elias, an occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. So it's been a while since we've been here. It yes. does feel a bit like that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I'm apologising to the listeners for not having had a show out for, I don't know, best part of a month. Yeah, um, we've, we've all taken turns getting sick. Uh, in fact, we all still seem to be sick at the time of recording, so uh-huh. yeah, w- wash your hands after listening to this. Yeah, you might want to disinfect your ears. Seriously, it's not good. But much has happened since last we recorded. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, like what? Do you not remember, Matt? Huh? How is life as a married man? Oh, ah! You know, I remember there's this this ring around my finger now. Oh, boy. Uh, when, oh, married life very much seems like spending one thing uh, time in bed for another uh, illness from one to another. It, that made no to, sense. Do you, do you want to try that again in English? Married life has addled your brain. Ma- ma- married life is just passing, almost like playing table tennis with bugs backwards, uh, back and forth. Say, hey dear, you have the bug this week. No, no, you can have it this week. Oh. And, and it wasn't like this before you got married. This is a, a, a strange kind of byproduct of actually being married. Until Pure. the rings went on the fingers, you were actually immune to each other. One, one ring to infect them all, yeah. <laughs> oh. Wow. I, I, I'd never realised there was that much involved. Ay, ay, ay. But it was a good day. It all went yes. off very well. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's video evidence up on YouTube to prove it. Yeah. And bizarrely, <laughs> <laughs> listener, Scott and I were uh, quite involved in the ceremony, as well as, obviously, you, Matt. Me? What did I have to do? Well, you just <laughs> there. Yeah. You had to give a speech. Scott that gave, is true, yes. And, and Scott mm-hmm. gave the bride away. I did. As, as uh, mm-hmm. stand-in father of the bride. Yes. How yeah. was that, Scott? Um, it made me feel really old. You didn't expect me doing that, did you? No, I didn't. <laughs> I thought you were going to make some. I thought you were going to make some quip about no returns policies in your speech, but you didn't end up doing it in the end. There was no. somebody who, whose girlfriend had said they were quite surprised that you'd actually got children because they didn't know about it. Yeah, I, I, I heard but a then few they comments were like, like that. Actually, it's not that surprising. <laughs> uh, it would have been a big bloody surprise to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you know more about this, listener. Of Scott's wild oats that he's sown in foreign climes. And, Keep uh, it to your bright self. Let us know. Because Scott wants to be father of the bride again and again. So, what are we talking about this week? I believe we're talking about Masks of Neanderthal. Companion. Yes. That too. Yes. Okay, well, it didn't escape our attention with our resident Kickstarter expert here. Me? Don't the- know what you mean. The Mask of Neanderthal Companion went up on Kickstarter a couple of weeks. It's been it's running for about a month, and it ends on the tenth of, of March. March. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, going great guns. Yeah, the 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 first the first big thing I know it went um, went big for was there was a lot of people clamouring to get hold of the limited edition copies that they put up there. Well, I think they rather underestimated the demand for the higher tier uh, limited edition <laughs> book at sixty five dollars, and there was only fifty of them. Yeah, that to start with anyway. 
They've done a second tranche of those, so another 50, but they all sold out pretty quickly as yeah. well, I think. I, I know I was poised there. I was, sat, I was sat on my computer at 8 o'clock on the Monday morning when it went... Uh, on the 8 o'clock oh, on the Monday evening when it went man. live. Yeah. <laughs> I, I managed to bag, I think it was 50-something, uh, the 25th or 26th copy, something like that. So, does that only get you a minor charge, then? Yeah, my Bibliomancer foo is, uh, is working <laughs> overtime. But the, the one thing, actually, I'm surprised that they can't do to cater for my bibliophile is not, they haven't got add-ons where you can purchase the other editions of the um, of the book. Of Marston and Arthur. Yeah. They, or, or, or the compa- companion. The companion, that is. Yeah, because yeah, they're doing, I think, two or three different versions of it um, with different cover treatments. So I'm, I'm, well, I'm hoping it's different cover treatments rather than just a bar at the top that just says Bloody Tongue Edition or... Well, shortly we'll be speaking to Adam Crossingham. Live on the show, and you'll be able to ask him. Yeah, I'll make, make a mental note for that. I can throw more money out. I can get more copies of the same book. Yeah. I'm sure he'd be happy about that. <laughs> Before we get into talking about the companion, we'll talk a little bit about the the campaign that inspired it. Uh, obviously, you know, we're going to be talking about a campaign that was published in the the early eighties. Uh, so the statute of limitation for spoilers should have passed by now, but still, if you haven't played it, be warned that we are about to spoil the bejesus out of Masks of Nialathotep. Whoop, 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 whoop! wonder who the bad guy is. Hmm. <sighs> if only there was some clue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been a long, long time since I ran Masks of Nialathotep, and to be honest, I can remember very little about it. So, I, well, as much make for an interesting show, Scott. <laughs> well, I was about to say, as much for my benefit as for the audience. What the hell is it about? <laughs> I, I remember the various comical ways in which people died in it, because this, this thing is a meat grinder. Oh, it God. really is. Yeah. And it's a world-spanning campaign. Was it the first world-spanning campaign from Chaosium? No, no. First one was Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth. Yeah. Ah, right, yes. Yeah. But it, but it certainly takes us all around the world, um, from New York to London to uh, Cairo to Shanghai to Africa. Yeah. Um, yeah, all, all over the so, place. So in Kenya? I think yes. Kenya. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Nairobi. Yeah. yeah. Certainly the one thing that Masks was famous for back in the 1980s, and probably still is, is the fact that, as you said, it is a meat grinder of a campaign. I I remember I ran this when I was at university around 1985. And when I was running it, I mean, we were running fairly long sessions, I mean, you know, six, seven hour sessions at least. But still, you know, in one of those sessions, I could pretty well guarantee that, you know, three or four investigators would die in every session. Wow. It's like meeting Cthulhu himself. 1d4 investigators die per round. Yeah. And, and you know, this was... I mean, it made for some memorable moments, and it certainly had that grim unpleasantness that, you know, you associate with Cthulhu. At the same time, I found, you know, it did stop people taking it quite as seriously and investing in it because, you know, they couldn't really get too attached to their characters. And this this kind of made me wonder, you know, with the um, the forthcoming release of Pop Cthulhu, is this a campaign that would actually work better in Pop Cthulhu than Straight Call of Cthulhu? In a heartbeat, yes. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't feel as pulpy as... Uh, I mean, the campaign we've been working on for Pop Cthulhu, it doesn't feel as outright pulp and kind of... Um, uh, not not this not that pulp has to be kind of gonzo, but it doesn't have a lot of those kind of pulp elements in it. No, but it has the 
potential that's the kind lethality. Of death it's the, it's yeah. got the danger. I mean, uh, uh, pulp as a definition covers a lot of things. I mean, fundamentally, pulp defi- as a definition refers to a paper stock. But uh, you know, pulp uh, pulp as a genre can mean anything from you know fairly grim, dangerous, nasty stuff to you know over the top, two fist. I guess my experience of it has been that the keeper has scaled things down a little and run it more as a Call of Cthulhu game with the usual kind of dangers but not the uh, not the meat grinder that it's perhaps written as so when Matt here and I played it at the Milton Keynes club I mean there were quite a few fatalities but most of us went through what two three characters at most I, I went through two I remember that yeah I think I well, went through the whole thing not per session yeah yeah the whole thing was two. <laughs> yeah. uh, one got nobbled in I think it was the Egyptian section. Yeah, on the first yeah. one, and that was that was it. The rest, of the other one, survived all the way through to the end. Yeah, blimey! So the keeper kind of moderated what was going on. So we still had the story, and we still had the sense of danger, and you know, potential imminent death. But you know, he he kind of, um, I guess, you know, geared it back a little so it wasn't so deadly. But I guess with Pop Cthulhu, you could just take the gloves off, run it as yeah. it's written. And I I don't think it would have an over-the-top gonzo feel uh, to it. I mean, you know, it, it depends what pulp talents people took for their characters. I mean, you know, as soon as you introduce a mad scientist or a psychic in there, it's going to change the tone of the game. Yeah. But if you very carefully choose more down-to-earth pulp talents, I think, you know, it would actually make quite a good straight game. Yeah. It- mm. And where would we be without that campaign? We'd have, we'd have a different name for the podcast for a start. Yeah, poor Jackson. Oh, no, no. Yeah. Your good friend Jackson Elias. <laughs> yes, for for those of you who aren't familiar with the, the inside joke or reference or whatever, Jackson Elias is the character who kind of starts things off in masks. Yeah, your motivation for the start of the campaign is that your good friend Jackson Elias has died. Mm-hmm. You're invited round to his apartment and you find his corpse. Yeah, you find um, in the process of being murdered. So you never actually get to meet the guy, but you're supposed to care about him. <laughs> well, it kind of works, but, you know, some people are just going to say, who gives the toss? I, don't, <laughs> I didn't know him. Well, one, th- one thing I see come up quite a lot on forums, I've seen it on yogsothos.com, and I think I've seen it on Reddit a few times, is people looking for advice on how to integrate Jackson Elias into other scenarios so that you know he is a running thread through the campaign so that the players, or rather the investigators, mm-hmm. have built up this relationship with him before he gets done in. Yeah. And this gives us a good platform to jump off onto the companion. In June 2013, version 0.9 of the Mask of Nalathotep Companion was put out for free on yogsothoth.com. Over the following month, I think it was downloaded 20,000 times. It's now been downloaded 50,000 times. Are, are there that many people out there who, who GM Call of Cthulhu? It's the ghosts of all the different characters that have been killed in the process of one person running the game. Lord only knows, <laughs> that is a lot of downloads, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's, that's got to be kind of a Google bot that's just gone mad somewhere. That's it's one in four be... exploding kittens backers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so what does the companion give us? Uh, it's a book which is divided into, it states in the introduction, ten chapters, but then it seems to be more than ten. Anyway, so we've got an introduction to the book and the campaign. We've got Keeper's Utilities which gives a lot of advice on how to run the campaign and how to structure it. We then have a whole chapter about Jackson and Elias, including, as we were discussing earlier, 
a scenario to bring him in before, uh-huh. you know, when he's actually alive. Uh, and later on, another chapter or uh, perhaps just an article about how to hold a seance and actually <laughs> talk to him later in the game. Excellent. In a chapter entitled Help from Beyond the Grave. Ooh. I kind of thought when I saw that it was going to be Jackson Elias just kind of turning up, you know, <laughs> in your car in ghostly form like Obi-Wan Kenobi. But that, that's what I'd go for. You'll strike me down and become a force more powerful than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> then you've got chapters on New York, London, Cairo, Kenya, Australia and China uh, with lots of information about those regions, background information on hotels and so on. You know, lots of inspiration for how to run the chapters in those locations. Each of those locations also goes into more detail about the artifacts and tomes that you might get in those particular chapters. So they're expanded. So there's an awful lot of stuff in here. 572 pages, over 300,000 words of material in this book. How, how much longer than the actual campaign is that? It's three times as long. Blimey. Wow. Mm-hmm. Do you think? Uh, given the size of the book on the shelf, it's three times as long. And four new scenarios. 27 pre-generated characters. That's a lot of stuff. Oh, 27 pre-generated characters. That should keep you going for a second. <laughs> yeah. You might just get past London. Yeah. <laughs> As a stretch goal, they should have just put out a pad with all those characters printed on it. Just so every time you know, one of your characters dies, you just rip the next one off the yes. top of the pad and slap it down in front of the player. It, it's that moment from the second Gamers film, isn't it? Just another bard. <laughs> <laughs> The companion gives us a lot of additional information that a keeper might in the past have generated for themselves, certain aspects of it. Does this fill in too much of the blanks where a a keeper might just wish to be a creative themselves? In the old days, scenarios and and, and campaigns seem to be lighter, you know, in, in their content. Would you agree? Nowadays, they seem to be more comprehensively mm. written. So if you look at Beyond the Mountains of Madness, I mean, half that book is, in effect, it's kind of a, a companion to itself. It's all background material yeah. and so on, it, and how it, to it, run it. It almost works as a, a, an Antarctic source book, doesn't it? Mm. It even says it on the spine of the book that it says an epic Antarctic campaign and source book for Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Masks were something quite different. I, I remember... Actually, you know, back in the dim and distant past when I ran it from the original box set, that, you know, for example, you know, I'd be GMing the uh, the chapter that was set in Nairobi and I'd realise that I actually knew almost nothing about Nairobi. Mm. And the information in there was fairly scant. But at the same time... Plus, plus, Scott, you couldn't just go onto Wikipedia and look it up. No, okay. <laughs> at the same time, yeah, you know, that didn't really seem to matter so much because... I, I don't know whether it was just you know a difference in play style at the time or now, but people didn't really seem to get into the nuts and bolts of the background. You know, it was much more you know here's the mission, here's you know what our characters are setting out to do. Let's just do it, and the rest of it was just window dressing. It does seem very much a modern feature that um, games have got a lot more grounding in fact and realism and historic. And, uh, as much as I hate the phrase historical accuracy in that some people will argue blue in the teeth, oh no, this shouldn't have happened, I've got this X, Y, and Z precedent, why this uh, this wasn't right at the time because the X was here and Y was there, that person was already dead and blah, blah, blah. People know too much about history. 
Well, it's, it's not exactly... People don't do much about it. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> they should live in ignorance. Burn those books. <laughs> Lobotomise your players. <laughs> but but I think, yeah, part of it is you know, what you, you jokingly touched upon, but it's the fact that the internet has changed quite a lot there because people have got access to all this background information. Whereas before... You, you know, have to go to some boring old library and look in musty old books to find stuff out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we, we're yeah. just making that a skill role in our game. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, pe- people just didn't care enough to do that for the game. But now, you know, the players can, you know, sit there on their phones and instead of paying attention while they're gaming, actually look up some details and yeah, uh, and, then, <laughs> and then correct the GM afterwards. Damn them. <laughs> but I think from a, from a keepering point of view, from a running the game, I feel uh, a little put off when there's so much content that I've got to read before I can even run that session. Oh, God, yeah. I, mean, I think that modularity of it is 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 key. So if they're going to Egypt, you know they're going to be in Egypt for, you know, quite a few sessions, so you can read that up. They're not going to be running away to somewhere else very quickly, or, or probably ever again, actually. And now we have an interview with Adam Crossingham of 60 Stone Press to discuss the Masks of Nialathrep companion Kickstarter. We're joined today by Adam Crossingham of 60 Stone Press. So welcome to Adam. Hello, thank you for having me. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. So we want to talk to you about the Mask of Nalathotep Companion and what your role in it has been. So can you tell us a little about how you got involved with the project? Right, well, uh, the project started way back in Mr. Time. I think it was maybe six, eight years ago. And I volunteered to do the layout for the book, wow. uh, or uh, as it was proposed. And um, yeah, I now seem to have taken over the uh, the book. It was originally proposed to be a monograph for Chaosium. Grew and grew and grew and grew. Uh, it got to such a length, it was sort of decided that there was so much material here that the, the fee for the monograph wouldn't duplicate the effort put into it so it was decided to make it a free download when it hit 50,000 downloads Paul of yogsofoff.com pulled it and it was decided to make it into a a book and hence the kickstarter that really is an incredible number 50,000 downloads that is it's quite a lot when you think about it yeah and we've got 521 backers on the Kickstarter as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I saw earlier today that the Kickstarter is just closing in on £25,000 at the moment. So congr- yeah. congratulations for that for a start. That's that's phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I must congratulate all the backers who've jumped on board. We set the, the goal low so we would achieve something. We had in mind a figure, uh, but we've surpassed it. Um quite significantly so i'd like to say anybody who's backed it and listening to this thank you very much i think matt has a few questions about the various editions matt do you want to fire those away yeah certainly can do um i actually am one of the backers on the um kickstarter um i was in the group that were uh, doing the shatner kind of khan impression when i saw that all the limited editions had sold out in the first wave but i managed to sit at my computer like a hawk at eight o'clock on a monday evening and bag one of the second batch yeah um, are there any plan 
are there any plans to open up as an add-on option where those of us that are completist absolutionists with bending shelves um, can buy all the other editions if we want to have them all? Um, well, the thing about a limited edition, it, it is a limited. Um, and it's got a price premium. That's why we did it, um, just to bump up. In hindsight, I should have made the, the limited edition bigger, but I don't think we could do another batch because I think it would sort of um, uh, depreciate the value of the first couple of batches. Um, so no, no, I'm that, sorry that's, about that's that. No, no, I've already got one. I, I was in on the second wave, oh. so I've managed to bag one. But I was in, I was interested, would you be willing to put add-ons up there where you could get like the softback editions or the regular editions if people wanted more than one copy? Yes, of or course. If wanted, if or if they wanted got, to diversify. Yeah, I, I added an add-on to the, the the project story last week that if you want another, if say you've backed uh, the hardback edition and you want a softback edition as well, you just need to add the price of the book and the shipping to your pledge, and we'll sort that out for you. Ah, oh, perfect. Right, I must have missed that was available then. Right, you yeah. might you might get an update from me saying my pledge has gone up. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've got used Lulu, so we, I'm afraid we can't offer postage discounts for buying more than one book, but we've tried to keep the postage as low as possible. Yeah, I've, I've used Lulu before. I know how they can, they tend to bulk things up pretty quick on postage. Yeah. So using Lulu, Adam, are you able to have them printed, some books printed for the British market and some books printed in America for the American market and save on that's, postage in that way? Yeah, that's exactly why we're doing it. So if you're in the States, your book will come from a printer in the States. And if you're in Britain, your book will come from a, a printer in Britain and, and, and at various locations around the world. If, cool. if you look at the table... The places with the cheap postage are where the books are coming from. If that makes any sense. It sure does. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so if I look at the postage, if I scroll so Canada, down, Australia, UK. UK is £4, so it's coming from the UK. Yeah. And the US is 8 I don't know quite where that's coming from. Wow, that that's, a, so that's curious. So their postage, their internal postage is working out twice as much as ours. Yes, yes. Well, and I yeah, guess well, that's, that's what they do charge. Yeah. Well, it is a bigger yeah. country. Mm. Yeah, and, and US Postal Service have been putting up their rates on international and domestic orders for a while. This has been a gripe that numerous Kickstarters have uh, voiced when they, they finally come around to shipping stuff. Yeah, but the other advantage of Lulu is we don't have to warehouse it. We don't have to distribute it ourselves. Oh, um, that must be a, a major saving, yeah. Yeah, this is very much our first Kickstarter, so we're just you know trying the water here and seeing how things go. Um, yeah, and it's a good way of mitigating risk, isn't it? Because I've seen other Kickstarters crash and burn slightly, particularly when it comes to delays, changing postage rates and stuff like that. Um, yes. So by, by doing it all through print-on-demand, you, you seem to be protecting yourself as much as possible uh, from all that risk. Yes, yes. Um, that's pretty much it. I mean, and also print on demand, we can, this is how we can offer the limited edition version and the hardback version, the softback version, because effectively uh, they are similar files with minor changes. So, uh, um, so you don't have to do a new set of plates for each edition. 
uh, because of the print-on-demand technology disposes of that responsibility. Your Kickstarter budget breakdown pie chart that you have on the Kickstarter page. Yes. It's an interesting breakdown of uh, all the costs. That that doesn't include the production of the cost of the books, though, right? That's our breakdown for our £6,000 initial goal. That was our £6,000 that we needed to fund. And if we got the £6,000, 51% of it would go to Yogsoft off. 12% of it would go for contributors' books, 3% for shipping and so on. Um, mm. So that's what where the, the £6,000 would have gone. But of course, we're now up nearly 25,000. So the, 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 uh, everything that's not contribution to Yog Sofoff will have shrunk. Yeah. And of course, um, uh, we will have to factor in the book production and postage for the, uh, the, the backers. So I'm guesstimating, I think about 50% of the end total of the Kickstarter will end up with yogsofoff.com. I've yet yeah, to do the figures yeah. properly, but I think that's the way it's going. And, you know, I think those costs will stay the same, but the slice of the print-on-demand charges for the backers' books will get bigger. Well, they're not there at all at the moment, so they will be a new section of the graph. Presumably I, I mean, that's, I, that, that would be a sizable chunk of the, yes, of the pie yes. chart. Yeah, but yeah. all the non-orange bits are fixed, as you can see. So they get mm. smaller in the breakdown at the end. Yes, yes. Yeah, and yeah. I'm aiming when the when everybody all the books have gone, I aim to send out a final email and um, uh, send another uh, pie chart breakdown, so everyone can see you know what's happened to their money. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We want to be clear and transparent as possible. This is a fundraiser for yogsofoff.com. So we want to be sure that people know that, that yeah, yogsofoff.com is getting the money that they've uh, pledged. All the associated costs with running uh, Yogsofoff, but is there anything particular that Yogsofoff are looking to do with this money or is it just to, to um, you know, to keep the site running? It's basically to keep the site running. Paul told me the costs and I, I winced when he told me that what they were. Um, <laughs> I couldn't quite believe they would be that much, but um, apparently they are. So um, right. So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's a it's a, a, a well-travelled site, so uh, it gets a lot of uh, traffic and a lot of downloads. Yeah, with, with, yeah. The, with the number of media files they host there, their bandwidth costs must be absolutely eye-watering. Yes, it was a fairly eye-watering sum that Paul told me. So I'm very pleased with the current status of the Kickstarter. And with the Kickstarter, Adam, you've got various um, stretch goals. Have, have you got some more up your sleeve? We do. Yeah, um, when these ones go by, is there anything, any uh, secrets you can share with us? Um, we've got some more uh, <laughs> NPC slash player character sheets coming up ah. um, from Pookie. Um, mm -hmm. James Horton has volunteered to do a whole bunch of stuff, um, uh, which we haven't announced yet, though James has intimated what they are in his comments on the site. Um, so there are various novels and um, so on that he's working on? Uh, no, no, no. They, they, are, they are novels of the period that he's using as examples. Ah. Sorry, that, that's a little oh. bit of confusion. They're not actual his novels. They are uh, novels that existed in the 20s. 
Oh, I see. So they're yeah. included, what, as PDFs? Or? Uh, we're hoping you will include Project Gutenberg links. But all the stretch goals as such is are going to be in the books that you, everyone's going to receive. So, and as that is, is there anything that's um, you know going to? I mean, the, the the dreadful stories we hear about Kickstarters being horribly delayed. Um, is there <laughs> well, anything that's going <laughs> to hold back the production of the companion? No, the well, the only obstacle to getting it delivered on time is me. Um, I'm a lazy so and so. Um, so um, I'm basically going to get my finger out and do it. As I've said in the risks of, on the Kickstarter, with the additional stretch goals, the book will have to be reordered yeah. um, because to fit stuff in. So there will be a reordering, a repage numbering. At that point, it means sensible. It doesn't have an index. So we might as well do an index as well. Yeah. Um, so that's going to take time. But I don't envisage it being a problem because uh, we're only adding each article is maybe two to four pages so mm -hmm. we're not adding that many more pages to the existing count and the existing counts already formatted and that's the that's the, the, the stuff that takes time so you can move pages around and the formatting goes with the pages sure. um so it's not like we have to do it from scratch and you have to write it in, in version 0 0.9 uh, when you got about halfway through, there was a yeah. um, page saying, you know, this is as far as we've edited. So is that still to be done or is, is that in hand now? Or No, I've gone through. Um, Brett set up a, uh, a wiki with um, editing changes and stuff, which I've completed to the version I've got. I think the version we put out on the Kickstarter website last week should be fully edited but if of course anybody oh, okay. sees if anybody sees any typos and stuff drop me a line and i'll, I'll make sure that those corrections go in i'd like to say thank you to the five or six people who've already done that they, they've they've not spotted stuff that have slipped through the net yeah crowdsourced proofreading does seem to be a wonderful thing oh isn't it Absolutely, just yes yeah. so my, my many thanks for those who have done it already and my thanks in future for those who will do so and is there anything that you've had to say no to? Any stretch goals or you know, requests from fans that uh, have just been unfeasible or interesting no. in any way? No, they've all been very sane and sensible, actually. Oh, um, how disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've had a number of offers from... Um, it's interesting, when you start a Kickstarter, you'll get all these emails from people you've never heard of, offering yeah. new services and stuff. Um We've been stalking, uh, talking to to Rafem, who do the official Cthulhu miniatures, mm. and they made a very generous offer, but we decided not to take it up because um, we're going to stick to what we know, mm. um, which is you know this Kickstarter is about the 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 Mask of Nolathotep companion, so that's what we're going to stick to, and of course we're working with uh, Ben Patey, who did the props, so we should have some right. props shortly to offer you as add-ons but those are kind of done and you know he did that as a previous kickstarter didn't he ah no 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 we had a stretch goal where he would do some specifically for the companion so oh, some nice. new props nice yes yeah i've got to talk to him and get those nailed down so we can uh, offer them to you but i mean he at least he is a known quantity he's done this before absolutely yeah 
yeah so i respect the fact that you kind of kept things under control and didn't go crazy with uh, <laughs> lots of ambitious uh, you know stretch goals and so on that would just slow things down yeah i mean uh, paul mclean of yogsofoff.com has been like uh you know the devil or the angel that sits on your shoulders and whispers in your ear uh-huh which he's one's been, he he's very much the angel right. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah um lots of wise words from him but yes uh we we've resisted the, the delight of stretch goal madness very sensible I, I know it's obviously this Kickstarter's not over yet, so it's early days yet. But based on your experiences with this, do you see Kickstarter as being something that 60 Stone Press will embrace from now on? Um, I'm not sure about whether we'll embrace it for everything. Um, but I think for big budget uh, projects, I think we're going to have to. Hmm. Simply fact, just to get the, the, the project out of the door... Um, you can sit there and wait for monthly income to, to accumulate before you can start on the project. Or you can go for a Kickstarter and get the money up front. Of course, you've got to deliver the, the project. If you're working off money you have, there's no expectation to deliver. Uh, so it's slightly easier. But I think for our major project, we are going to have to do it just to get the seed capital and to get the project out of the door. And I've been sitting on three projects for nigh on four years now and i'd really like to get them out in front of the players and um, move on to something else would be super all right do you want to do you want to just drop a few hints as to what any of those are adam well they are um we have uh, daniel harms's ghouls source book wow i play tested a scenario from that must be eight years ago i should think yes yeah, same yeah. here Absolutely. We're in the process of converting it to 7th edition at the moment. Right. I have um, to say, it was a really great scenario as well. We need to get it finished, edited, and in front of Chris Huff, who does layout for us. Um, he's a very busy man because he works with Palgrain. Yes. Um, so we've been able to get stuff in front of him uh, last year. Um, so we need to get that you know, done and dusted so you can get in front of Chris and then, you know, out to market. Um, we've also got um, Unhallowed Wizardry by John Sneed. Uh, that's been recently converted to 7th edition by John Sneed himself. Um, that's entering layout any day now. Um, and finally, we've got Colonial Lovecraft Country mm. um, by Kevin Ross absolutely superb it's got to go through we've done initial play testing we've got to make edits and we've got to convert it to seventh edition but that's that's the big budget item to do colonial lovecraft country properly we are going to have to do a lot of money because the art assets are going to cost quite a lot of money mm. um, that sounds like an exciting one yeah yeah i mean that's the one i really want to see out um I'm, I'm sure Kevin does as well. If Kevin's listening, I'm really sorry. It's just waiting for the money to go. And that's the one that's most exciting for me because it's a, a period very close to my heart. Um, and I think it's it's unexplored um, period for Call of Cthulhu. If you want to search on Google for Mask of Nolotep Companion Kickstarter, you can go straight to the site. Uh, we've got 16 days to go. 
so you've got 16 days to come and get a, a unique copy of the masks companion because after the kickstarter starts the only place you'll be able to get it in print is at chaosium.com cool well th that's uh extend a big thanks to adam crossingham for that interview that was uh, enlightening and interesting yes thank you very much adam thank you very much and, and thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk about the masks companion Well, thank you, Adam, for the interview. Moving back to scheduled programming, we're going to discuss our own experiences with the Master of Nyarthalotep campaign. Between us, we've run and played it. Scott, you've run the campaign. Have you ever played it? I, well, I ran it, well, as I said, about 30 years ago, and I've played a couple of sessions. Uh, uh, Keeper Murph of the Miskatonic University podcast has been running a game over Skype, and I, I sat on it in a few sessions of that and had an absolute blast. Excellent. You know, I, I did warn him ahead of time that I had run it, and he, you know, he said it didn't really matter too much. And, you know, it's 30 years. I'm not going to remember the fine detail of it. Yeah, the, the few sessions I played uh, were terrific. Unfortunately, because of scheduling conflicts, I, I, I've attended far fewer of them than I really would have wanted to. And Matt, you've played through it just once played at it. the club? Yes. Yeah. In fact, same, same time as you. Yeah, I played it um, some years before, the, the start of it, from uh, America, London and Cairo. I played it with Matt Knott, the guy who run it for us oh. <laughs> uh, there was a guy in Milton Keynes Chris somebody um, he disappeared off to London so that was as far as we got but he, that, that, that was really good you, you, what, um, you, what you mean is you drove him away from Milton yeah, Keynes yeah it's another player we drove away what the hell <laughs> um, but yeah that was, that was really good fun um, so I've got some um, fond memories of that and then you know I was keen to play through the whole thing so I just kind of I'd like to say that I kind of played it dumb, but basically I just forgot what happened anyway and, uh, you know, played it, as Scott says. Yeah. Yes, when, when you get to our age, forgetting stuff is easy. <laughs> what are you nodding for, Matt? I've got an appalling short-term memory. <laughs> Let's take a trip down memory lane. What do you recall of the adventure, Matt? Uh, like I said, I remember interesting moments where either people died or just plain stupid shit happened. That, um, that, that 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 kind of sums up my memory of playing masks almost entirely. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 everything alternated between those two things. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> most of the anecdotes I've got to mind pretty much fall into said into said categories, and that that was about it. Um, the the moment for me was not so much of a metagaming moment, um, but just that little light bulb that went on in my head that thought, of course, this makes perfect sense. At the end of New York, when you think. You find a mask. The campaign's called Masks of Neartholotep. Therefore, obviously, this mask is going to be fairly important. I know it might be that uh, kind of trope of looking through the eyes of the mask and you might show you the next part of where to go in the campaign. No, you just look through the mask and see Azathoth. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> if I remember correctly, there is actually a random table of effects there. There, there is, yeah. And, and you drew the short straw on that one. Yeah, I, thankfully I managed uh, managed to pass my sand check, um, so I only lost a, a little amount. Um, but it was holy crap! I'm not doing that again. Yeah, I remember you being taken out of the room at that point. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll put the mask on. Come with me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which won't bring dice. You'll need them. <laughs> um, but no, there was I think you maybe jumping ahead slightly um, using that mask 
uh, in the anecdote. After that experience, we later, when we got hold of various cultists, used it as a torture device. <laughs> in which case, oh, you're not answering our questions. Have a look through this. <laughs> Left them as a gibbering wreck. Right, do you want to see? Do you want to have, have? Basically, do you want to go the way of your friend? Oh, okay. <laughs> and then when one of the when one of them didn't go mad. I was like, oh, hang on a minute, what the hell happened there? <laughs> Good old Azathoth boarding. Oh, no, we, we ended up effectively cherry calling Nodens because he, he got too annoyed with us calling him up all the time for help. <laughs> so it was, you can't have Azathoth on speed dial. <laughs> no, I certainly wouldn't want to have him on. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the first anecdote that I had in mind sort of tangentially ties in with uh, that mask. Um, but th- this is when I was playing the Skype game with Murph and uh, his, his regular group of players. And uh, one of the players, Magnus, uh, had, had got hold of this mask. But this uh, he hadn't actually tried using it until all the characters uh, were in the UK following the, uh, the events of the London chapter. And um, I, I'd come in just after the clusterfuck that they'd had which had involved all of them fleeing London and going <laughs> off to a country house um, and one, one of the characters had a background whereby he'd been I think the butler at this stately home somewhere in, in the Buckinghamshire countryside uh, and so the entire group goes off and hides there uh, and they, they decide that this is the time that they're going to go through all the magic items and spells and tomes that they've learnt and start working out what they all do and so Magnus's character starts off putting the mask on you know, gets a visit from Azathoth and you know, it doesn't make the sand roll and you know, blows away most of his sand in one go um, and is left you know, indefinitely insane and badly shaken by the whole experience he then decides that this is the time that he wants to start playing around with some of the spells he's learned. And, uh, of course, the first spell that he decides he's going to, to do, uh, play with is, um, correct me if I get the name wrong here, but uh, Body Warping of Gorgoroth, is it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he picks, I, th- oh, I can't remember initially, it's another random party member or someone or someone he's seen uh, tries that and finds that it works. And it's, oh, wow. Okay. And um, he decides, you know, he, he, he takes the sand hit for that and that takes him kind of dangerously down low already. Uh, and... Um, he uh, then decides that he's going to try it again just to make sure it works and the form that he's going to take on is that of King George Uh, as you do yeah so (laughs) he did that he turns into King George, and that's the point at which he goes pretty well permanently insane. And his insanity takes the (laughs) form that he actually believes he is King George um He's starting to draw too much attention uh, while they're, everyone's hiding out in the stately home. Uh, it, it, the, yeah, they, they're not even in the stately home. They're in this uh, groundskeeper's hut on the ground somewhere. And so he basically goes out and starts trying to disturb uh, the gardeners, you know, dressed in his ragged clothing, sort of saying, I'm the king, don't you know, and stuff like that. And so everyone else thinks, fuck this, and decides to kill him instead. <laughs> and uh, they, I mean, they, they try doing it without witnesses, but of course they're observed doing so. And, uh, yeah, they, they, because of this apparent act of regicide, um, <laughs> they, 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 the, the survivors once, yeah, they uh, uh, once the group had been dealt with at the staff uh, by the staff at the stately home, just ended up having to flee the country. <laughs> I have fond memories of being under the pyramids in Cairo, which 
We'd seen there was a, a black pool in the middle of the room. This is not the time I played it with you, Matt. This was the time before. No, but I've read it in the book. <laughs> I know. So there's a, there's a black pool and there's a boat tied up on it, maybe like a little raft or a little rowboat or something tied up to it, on, but it's kind of adrift in the black pool. Uh, so we journeyed up to the other end and there's, there's a throne and there are statues. And then as we, as I recall, as we went up towards the statues, they started to come to life. So the group of us fled away from these these statues that were animating and one of the guys said okay i'm going to run and i'm going to jump on that boat okay what's the worst that happened you, you know he'd land in the water and swim to the boat yeah he landed in the water i'm making air quotes here which turns out oh it's not actually water it's leeches <laughs> so covered in leeches he manages to get to the boat i think he just survives now if memory serves me right the same guy Soon after, having just survived this this terrible um, terrible confrontation, then goes and sits down on the throne. Yeah, that. Now I don't know if it. anybody did that in our game, Matt. Yeah, one of us did. But he managed to make the sand roll and lose one sand. <laughs> <laughs> so was possessed by Nalathep, one sand loss. He was fine, <laughs> apparently. Yeah, I mean Nalathep's bad, but he's not as bad as leeches. The thing that I remember best from when I ran the game uh, all those years ago was, yeah, I mentioned before what a meat grinder it was, but there was one guy I played with at the time who was one of the most skilled min-maxes I've ever come across in, you know, in my, my long role-playing career. Uh, and he came up with a cunning way of... He played lots and lots of RuneQuest, and he came up with a cunning way of, you know, learning from his RuneQuest experience uh, for playing Call of Cthulhu, uh, which is uh, he had, had sussed out how good armour could be if you had really solid armour. <laughs> so his pretext for this was that he played a Japanese historian... Uh, who specialised in uh, uh, the uh, the era of the samurai. And um, he had a full suit of samurai armour and a katana. Uh, and, As you do. Do, yeah. you, do you have a trench coat to go with it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this was before the trench coat katana days. This oh. is 1985. Oh, wow. Uh, he, was, he was ahead of the curve there. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yes, he wandered through Masks of Nyarlathotep with the same character from New York all the way through to Shanghai, uh, just because everyone else was dropping dead all around him. But he had six points of armor from the samurai armor, and so you know a lot of you know uh, blows and and the occasional gunshot and so on were largely bouncing off him. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, he, <laughs> I, and he got a little overconfident with this, and it got round to Shanghai, and there's a bit in Shanghai where you encounter a shoggoth. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Luke decides that, uh, yeah, he's, he's survived everything else so far. So there's this shoggoth coming, charging straight towards the party. Everyone else is running for cover or standing there gibbering and going mad. He says, no, I'll stand there and face it down, pull my katana out. And I said, yeah, I, I, he was really pissed off with me afterwards for this. And I said, I'm not even going to roll damage. I'm not. Yeah, this is like standing in front of a fast-moving train. Yeah, I, I, I said. Yeah, you're standing there. Next moment, spam in a can. Yeah, there's just this flattened suit of armor on the ground and red stuff leaking out of it. Oh. <laughs> well, to, to be fair, that's that's the same same kind of. That's where my anecdote from Shanghai comes from. 
Mark Kerr, the lovely guy that he is, had the worst session I've seen in a long time with uh, with that Shoggoth. Um, he died from a assault from the ninjas or whatever the hell they were that were firing poison blow darts oh, okay. in, yeah, in yeah, the park yeah. beforehand. He fails his con roll, dies. Spends half an hour rolling up a new character. <laughs> Um, then coming up with the backstory as to um, he knew X, Y, and Z people, the reason why he was in Shanghai, where he was. He should have held thing. on to that backstory for a few more minutes, really. Yeah, he should have done. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, we had that one, that one uh, scene. Right now, you got back to the compound in town um, with that uh, kind of courtyard where you end up sleeping and so forth. And yeah, he, he's in done his introductions. We all bed down for the night. Uh, Matt asks, "Give me a um, like a hard spot hidden roll." And the only, oh, listen, Ron, the only person to pass it was Mark, who's woken up by this drip, 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 drip. So wanders around trying to find the source of the noise and goes over to the main uh, double doors <laughs> that lead into the compound and finds this pool of water coming under the door. What is that under the door? Oh, it's, pool, it's a pool of water, obviously, so I'm going to go find a mop and bucket and start mopping it up. <laughs> <laughs> At which point the Shoggoth goes, Rom! And kills him without <laughs> kills him without a roll. <laughs> so he, he had half an hour of ginning a character, one roll, and was dead. So I think there's a tip for players: when you create a new player character for the campaign, come up with a with a, a rationale for why you know the other players and your you know the other player characters and your your backstory. But don't divulge it too quickly. Wait until you've been playing for at least about half an hour or an hour, because then if you get killed during that time, all the other player characters can kind of look at you and go, go well, who was that guy who was mopping up the, the door? Well, I don't know, I've never seen him before. <laughs> and now we have another interview, this time with Steve Ellis, good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, um, who has run Master of Neartholotep using the 7th edition quick start rules. We're now joined by Steve Ellis, an old friend of ours from various conventions and from the gaming circuit in the UK, uh, who has recently run Masks of Nialothotep using Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. So, welcome Steve. Hi Scott, glad to be on. Excellent, glad to have you. As I just mentioned, you ran Masks using 7th edition, and obviously you did this before 7th edition was actually out. So, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you managed to do that? Yes, I used the 7th edition quick starter rules, uh, the Masks Companion PDF from yogsothoth.com at the time, and uh, uh, the Masks of Nyalothotep 4th edition. So because I'm a fairly experienced keeper, I was able to convert masks on the fly, just multiplying statistics by five, using the 7th ed character sheets and character creation for the players, letting them burn luck, and uh, push rolls. Cool. So, did you find that using 7th edition made much difference there? I think it made it a more dramatic and survivable campaign. I emphasised it was very much going to be a pulp take on uh, Mass of Nailothotep. So we had mesmerists, we had a Cato-like assistant to a, a pulp uh, hero uh, as, as part of the PCs, and uh, it went really well. Oh, excellent. Masks is notorious for being a meat grinder of a campaign. Um, what, what kind of attrition rate did you end up with? We only had about 
four character deaths across the entire campaign, though two of the characters did spend a fair amount of time in sanatoriums recovering mid-game, and others spent a lot more time in hospital. Huh. One thing that kept the uh, characters alive uh, and surviving was we one player did choose a surgeon character and we increased the advantages of medicine and first aid to do 1d3 hit points back instead of the seventh ed one point back so that made a real difference in keeping players alive aha uh-huh. mm-hmm. yeah i mean in- interestingly i mean that's something that's that's there in pop cthulhu as well uh that that's been restored as as do, you know recovering damage as well so yeah I, I, th- I think you're quite right on that you know setting the the pulpy tone mechanically another thing i did uh and this taps into another part of what I did differently with masks is I wanted to keep uh, the memory of Jackson Elias live within the the players' heads and minds, keep him present within the campaign even months after uh, you know his initial demise. So they could do kind of lost style flashbacks and they had three lifelines to do these flashbacks with. And one of the lifelines was it you know, they'd have a memory of a time when Jackson inspired them or taught them something. And one of the lifelines was getting back 10 hit points or 10 sanity as they needed it. Another lifeline was getting an, a hard success on a roll automatically. And the third one was getting plus 20 uh, to a, a skill percentage permanently, reflecting something Elias had taught them. Excellent. So I mean, did the players really embrace that and go to town with it? Yes, they did, yeah. So, uh, so, so what what kind of flashbacks do they come up with there? Oh, there would be things such as uh, when when our Cato-like ninja was trying to sneak into the Penhu Foundation uh, and needed to make a distraction on a stealth roll. He remind remember the time when Jackson had uh, had shown him how to. Uh, throw a little stone across and make a noise and distract the guard as they, you know, they uh, crept into a thuggy cult. Uh, another one went back to the time when uh, Jackson he had worked with Jackson and uh, done favors for the British British intelligence and uh, got pl- plus twenty percent to his credit rating. Oh, brilliant! That, that sounds a really wonderful way of um, keeping Jackson, you know, the memory of Jackson alive in the game and tying it all together. It is, and that's one of the main problems with masks. When you come to read it as a keeper, uh, Jackson summons you to a meeting with a telegram, and he's basically asking you uh, at the beginning to put aside your lives for six months or a year to come out and help him. So it occurred to me, you know, what kind of person, what would a person need to mean to you Mm. for you to do that? You know, is it somebody you you're related to is it somebody that saved your life is it the guy who got you out of a bolivian jail you know what is the background there that strong obsessional connection with jackson that you would give up your life for six months to go off and help him and everybody came up with yeah that some was a kind of connection yeah and that was part of the the character generation and setup for the game so one character was uh, jackson's aunt and uh, next of kin another was his number one book fan who had co-written the uh, witch cults of england with him so a fellow author um and yes it was another had uh, had 
had his life saved by Jackson because he was the British intelligence agent that was infiltrating the thuggy cult. And uh, they discovered him, but Jackson managed to rescue him. Oh, that's a really good idea. I mean, you, you mentioned that a few of the characters did die during play. Did you come up with similar hooks for the replacement characters that came in, or were they just people who were recruited by the existing investigators? No, it, it tended... At, another thing we did was at the start of play, every player did two characters. Ah. So they both had connections to Jackson, and... Uh, one was the primary character, and when that one got too mad or too injured to go on, then we could rotate to the secondary character. So did you ever need any other characters apart from those those initial ones? Uh, we did. For example, in Kenya, uh, we had uh, a death there, and so the NPC Nails Nelson, this drunken mercenary, uh, got promoted to PC status, and uh, he was played. What, what what really is your your favourite thing about masks? What 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 brought you to you know want to spend? Well, I mean, you talk about the characters taking out a year of their life to do this, and you're taking out a big chunk of your life to actually run the damn thing. So, what what is it that that kind of brought you into running this epic campaign? Well, as you say, masks. It took nine months for us to play all the way through. We did it over twenty six sessions, uh, meeting weekly, and it's a campaign that i think is properly called one of the best campaigns ever written and i think a lot of the secret in it is in the pacing there's a wide variety of exotic locales uh these you know constant threats from cults uh there's human scale threats but there's also more monstrous great old ones and and terrible creatures lurking out there but the pacing of the campaign is really nice i think and that's one of the things that that really elevates it Certainly, Masks has been on my uh, gaming bucket list for a long time. It's one of those campaigns that every good uh, keeper really should run at least once. Mm. Uh, do you ever played it before? No, I haven't. All right. Um, so, I mean, did you find uh, that, I mean, particularly, you know, someone who was coming uh, to it with without the experience of playing it, did you find that the companion helped you a lot with that? I found the companion was really invaluable. It had uh, formal GM advice on all of the sections, which was great. It's like having an experienced GM there by your side saying, yeah, you could change this location or when the writer wrote about this, he kind of skipped some bits. So if you, for example, live in London, as we do, and the London bits don't make sense, then here's alternative places you could do. You could set things. Um, here's how things you know, could work. There's other sections of the companion we used. There was the advice on magic. There was uh, some nice little scenes and adventures, such as the funeral of Jackson Elias or the Cat's Cradle adventure, which is a bit of a Mr. Marple Poirot style of murder mystery on a on a ship uh, in between locations. Oh, nice. Uh, another bit that added a lot of flavour were the paintings of Miles Shipley, you know, the actual campaign itself just talks about how they're horrible and blasphemous. But in the companion, you've got every single one of the 40-odd uh, paintings described uh, in various uh, worrying and uh, squamous ways. Oh, cool. Is that is that the guy in London? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And that was a very memorable early encounter uh, as they went to buy paintings from Miles Shipley and figure out what his connection with things might be. Cool. 
Another really great bit in the companion are the write-ups for the various tomes that the characters will encounter. Mm. There's great material there about exactly what they've learnt, uh, the type of knowledge, names for the spells they've learned and what they do and how they can be interpreted. And they've got some great handouts that you can just pass the players and say, yep, okay, you flick through it, this is what you see. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, I guess these are the kinds of things that, you know, I, I, I read this campaign 30-odd years ago, obviously before, you know, long before the Companion was ever thought of. And I guess a lot of these things were the things that, you know, you, you, you had to think of on the fly. Uh, but, yeah, I like the idea of, of having those handouts and actually being able to, you know, make uh, things like uh, those books into more concrete artifacts for the players. You know, that's, that's a really nice thing. Uh, yeah. Did, did 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 you find the amount of information though, you know, overwhelming at any stage, or did it kind of hit the balance between um, supporting you with what you needed without uh, giving you more than you could actually keep track of? Well, the companion itself is huge, nearly seven hundred pages. It, uh, I did print out a fair chunk of it, and it dwarfs the actual campaign itself. Mm. I had to stay very organized with this campaign. I had a number of different folders for the different cities. So I could print out the masks of Nalathotep PDF for, say, London. I could marry it then with the uh, masks companion section on London and put it together. And so that lets you break down this great big mass of information um, into manageable bits. Because when you're doing London, that's really all you need to know. You, you don't mm. need to keep Kenya in mind so much or Shanghai. Um, and then, yes, we also needed uh, a, a whole folder just for the handouts that they get. Um, the the characters, you know, they needed their plastic envelopes to keep their notes from the, the long campaign in. In fact, I was a bit worried that we wouldn't remember sort of six months on what had we done in New York. So I even started a Obsidian Portal wiki to kind of keep track of what they'd done and what they'd learned. And really, I think at the end of the day, we didn't need it because we did do it, you know, weekly for nine months it was mostly kept in mind and people could remember what had happened but that's definitely another option for sorting out the data or using as a reference is building a wiki mm. no no that seems like a really good idea masks is a campaign that's got lots and lots of cool moments in it and you know, I mean, we could probably fill in an hour or two just talking about the various cool bits in there uh but what what were your favorite bits that came up or your favorite not even necessarily your favorite scripted bits from the campaign but the favorite things that came out during uh your playthrough of the whole thing i liked that it was such an open sandbox that the uh players and characters actions uh you know really mattered and could really take things in different ways so there were some great moments early in london where some uh some of the female pcs decided to date gavigan and invite him out to the ritz and then he invited uh her out to see his country house out at miser house um to see his mummy that he just got from egypt uh so that that was a, a fun take on it Another great moment was where one character was in a prison cell next to Tufik, and Tufik uh, changes his face, uh, 
losing a, a guard, one of a police sergeant, kills him, changes his face, puts on the guard's uh, uniform and gives our hero a, a nice little wave as he uh, lets himself out and walks out of jail. <laughs> so Tufik became a real recurring villain for them throughout the campaign and actually was part of the inspiration to drive them from London to chase him back to Egypt and uh, Cairo. Uh, another great moment was uh, in Egypt when they're worried that uh, the cult are going through their things and they're going to find that you know the valuables that they've they've got. Uh, the doctor uh, decides to put on the girdle of Nitocris under her clothes and around her waist, uh, so that if her room is searched, then the uh, cult won't discover it. And then later on, she says, uh, oh, and uh, OK, well, now that's passed. I can take it off. And I went, I shook my head and said, no, <laughs> it doesn't come off. Uh, and then this led to a nice little possession plot as the spirit of Nita Chris increasingly tried taking over her uh, her body and succeeding. And as that segued into uh, the Kenya elements, they eventually you know, their mesmerist was able to access the Nitocris personality and they were able to strike a bargain, uh, a devil's bargain with Nitocris that they they would take her to a more suitable vessel, vessel say Moeru, the favoured one of Nihilothotep. <laughs> oh, wow. And that uh, they would try and get the girdle dead onto Moeru so that uh, she could be possessed by Nitocris and Nitocris could come back in the full blooming of her power as Nihilothotep's, you know, chosen and priestess so that <laughs> led to a great battle in in uh, the kenyan mountains uh between two one player playing nita chris versus an npc moeru uh, as the two priestesses went at it with all their magic and might oh that's wonderful but yeah as you say it's you know the little things the players mention or try that can then snowball into some some great moments yeah, I mean, Musk seems to be full of these little uh, kind of spells and items and so on that, you know, on the face of it, seem to be useful, but are there almost like little time bombs for the players or just to tempt them into, you know, trying to use them in desperate circumstances only to, to find that they ultimately make life so much worse? Indeed. Like I said, it is a great campaign. Um, it's a sandbox that's just so much fun to play in. Do you think Masks has held up uh, in its attitudes? Uh, I mean, it was written, you know, 30-odd years ago, and the world was a very different time then, um, particularly seeing as, you know, it is, is a globe-spanning adventure. Uh, does it, you know, it, I mean, do the sort of colonial and, and racial aspects of it great at all, or do you think they've held up? Uh, yeah, I think that Mass was one of the most forward-looking uh, campaigns of its time. It's got one of the, it's, I guess, most racially aware campaigns, certainly of the era. Uh, for example, this is a campaign that if you're not playing American characters, but say more British Empire characters, uh, the British Empire stretches to most of the locations of mass, apart from New York. And so if you've got somebody who's part of the British government, who's white, who's got a high credit rating and is upper class then things get a lot easier. You get official support. Uh, for example, 
you know, when they arrived at uh, Mombasa, uh, they could present to the authorities there a, a cult leader that had been trying to kill them on board a ship from Cairo. Uh, they'd had, you know, they'd had him arrested. The captain had thrown him in the brig. And when they got him to Mombasa, because he was Arabic, because he was kind of poor, because he was uh, a foreign cultist that they could accuse of destabilizing the empire, they could have the guy imprisoned with a ro- and with a high enough credit uh, rating role. They even convinced him to have him, you know, put up in front of a kangaroo court and then shot uh, in front of a wall. Uh, Whereas two of the other characters that we had were Chinese uh, characters. So they suffered from racism in Harlem. They suffered from racism in London. uh, They stuck out in Egypt. It was only when they kind of came into Shanghai that they came into their own. Mm. And all of a sudden, the kind of the racial problems that they were having turned around, and it was the white characters that were being reacted to with suspicion and dislike. Huh. Well, that's, that's really interesting. So, it's certainly in terms of, I guess, racial awareness, mass was years ahead of its time. Huh. Well, that's really good to hear. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah, it's interesting to hear. That just sounds like an amazing campaign. I wish I could have played in that. Uh, but yeah, it sounds like it was fun from beginning to end. Well, thank you very much for sharing that with us, Steve. I, that, that that was inspirational. Thank you. And I, I do recommend Masks as a great campaign for every Cthulhu GM out there. It's certainly my favourite one. And with the companion, it's just even better. Oh, has Adam got you on commission then? <laughs> <laughs> no, I... I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, this was a free PDF I downloaded from yonksothoth.com, and it was really invaluable. Huh. Excellent. Thank you again, Steve. Bye. Cheers, Cheers Steve. <laughs> See ya. See ya. Well, thank you to Steve for sharing his experiences with us. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. That was an interesting discussion. How do you think that went? I think it was interesting. Uh, it's going to be a bit difficult to, to really... Particularly, what do you think about the interviews, Scott? I, I think the interviews are absolutely fucking marvellous. Um, well, I assume they're absolutely fucking marvellous. I mean, the truth is, we're actually recording this session about two days before we do the interviews, so for all we know, they could be absolute shit, but we're going to say they're marvellous because we, we have faith in our interviewees. We do. They'll be marvellous. This is where I hopefully I'll remember to ask Adam about seeing if we can add on the um, getting the additional editions of the companion in the kickstarter if you do forget this bit's just going to be great (laughs) (laughs) that brings us to the end of tonight's show so it's good night from me cheerio from me and farewell from me i'm sure you don't need to be reminded but concrete cow the one day role-playing convention hosted by the milton Keynes rpg club is almost upon us again concrete cow 15 will take place on the 14th of march Doors open at 9am, games start at 10, and there are three gaming slots, and we generally kick everyone out about 11pm. The venue is the Old Bathhouse in Wolverton, not far from Wolverton Station in Milton Keynes. 
It will cost you £5 to get in, and if you want to go to the optional buffet lunch at the Eastern Paradise Indian restaurant, that will cost you another £11. If you hear this in time, we hope to see you there. If you don't hear this in time, we're disappointed in you. But don't worry, there's another cow along in six months, so we'll catch you there. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes dot com. Mm-hmm.